Psalm 96, interesting to note with regard to this psalm that there is no heading or title, no author identified. Some of the psalms are like that. And what you can draw from that is that the truths contained in it are timeless and could apply to any age and to anyone. Psalm 96, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen, that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful, and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 2, especially the second part of the verse. I'll read the entire verse, but we're focusing on the second part of the verse where we are exhorted, Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. Show forth his salvation. That indicates to us, doesn't it, that salvation is something that is supposed to be demonstrated. It's supposed to be revealed. It's supposed to be communicated by us as we show it forth, as we make it visible, so to speak. That certainly runs deeper, doesn't it, than merely making a profession of faith. A profession of faith, I guess you could say, could contribute to showing forth his salvation, but it has to be accompanied by something that is consistent with the profession. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Some time ago, I read an interesting study from the Barna Research Center. George Barna, perhaps you've heard of him. He makes it his ministry to follow religious trends and developments through survey studies. And one particular study had this to say about the increase of the number of born-again Christians since the 1980s. Listen to what this study says. After poring over numerous national studies we have conducted since the early 80s, 
I believe that the issue is the way in which we have proposed Christianity to the boomer generation. At heart, boomers are consumers. Maybe I should stop here long enough to qualify that term boomer. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that goes back to about the early 50s, 1950. I am a baby boomer, believe it or not, born in 1953. But I think what's being said here with particular application to boomers could be said of those that follow. I think you could say it also of millennials. We're consumers. The way we presented Christ to most boomers struck a resonant chord with them from that mindset. We told them all they had to do was say a prayer, admitting that they made some mistakes. They're sorry and that they want to be forgiven. Boomers weighed the downside, which really amounted to nothing more than a one-time admission of imperfection and weakness and return for permanent peace with God, and figured it was a no-brainer, a can't-lose transaction. The consequence has been millions of boomers who said the prayer, asked for forgiveness, and went on with their life with virtually nothing changed. Sadly, the researcher continued, they misunderstand the heart of the matter. They saw it as a deal in which they could exploit God and get what they wanted without giving up anything of consequence. But very few American Christians have experienced a sense of spiritual brokenness that compelled them to beg God for his mercy and acceptance through the love of Christ. We have a nation of Christians, quote-unquote, who took the best offer, but relatively few who were so humiliated and hopeless before a holy and omnipotent God that they cried out for undeserved compassion. That helps to explain why, in practical terms, it's hard to tell the difference between those who have beliefs that characterize them as born again and those who don't. The difference between the two groups is based on semantics, more than a desperate plea for grace that triggered an intentional effort to live a transformed life. In his book, Barna encourages church leaders to reconsider how we present the gospel to America and to examine the impact that current spiritual approaches are having upon self-satisfied spiritually complacent people. My, what an accurate description of our culture. I know I've shared it with you in the past. I don't think I've shared it with you recently. Uh, when I was in the Chicago area and I had opportunity to visit the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton, Illinois, and in that historical museum, there is uh, on the ground floor, at least there used to be, I assume it's still there, um, there is um, a rather large uh, exhibit made up of several exhibits, actually, that trace the history of revival uh, through America. And it goes back to the days of Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening. And you see a number of quotes from Jonathan Edwards, and it communicates what uh, anyone who knows their church history knows, which was that back in the days of Edwards, revival was seen as a sovereign act of God. 
It was something that could only be granted by God's grace when sought for earnestly by the people of God in earnest prayer. That changed in the 1800s, the early 1800s, especially with the arrival of Charles Finney on the scene. And I know I've told you about a particular exhibit there in the museum where they have uh, these silhouette figures of these various famous evangelists and preachers, including Charles Finney. And before you, as the viewer of this exhibit, there's this panel box, probably about the size of this desk right in front of me here, with a number of buttons on it that correspond to the figures that are off in the foreground. And you can push a button that corresponds to any of these uh, men and preachers, and it gives you a summary capsule of that man's life and ministry. And there is Charles Finney, and I never will forget, I pressed the button for Charles Finney, and the very first thing you hear from that taped recording is, here is the man that changed all the rules of revival. And I remember thinking to myself, I was utterly astonished that not only do they admit it, but they actually glory in it. And they present revival in such a way, and this has been the case, generally speaking, in evangelical circles since that day. I wouldn't say this has been the case in Reformed circles, per se, although some in Reformed circles have certainly gone with the cultural flow in such movements as Billy Graham, who flows right out of this mindset. But it's been very man-centered and very Arminian. The notion very prevalent that salvation does amount to little more than just a prayer that you say, and then your life goes on unchanged. Well, that's the phenomenon that's being addressed in this Barna study. I'm glad when it's somebody else who says this and not just me. You get the feeling at times, I suppose, a little bit like a broken record that keeps repeating the same thing. And I think what that Barna study amounts to is the proof that Christianity, this may not be as true today as it was some years ago, but I think in large measure you could still say that Christianity is popular but powerless. Popular but powerless. And what about our presentation of the gospel? It's easy, I suppose, in a day of easy believism to criticize all that's wrong in that presentation. But what then would be the alternative? What's the right way to present the gospel of Christ? And I think the psalm that we've just read can help us answer that question. We're called upon in verse 2, to show forth his salvation from day to day. Show forth his salvation from day to day. I want to focus on that that theme briefly this afternoon, considering particularly how it is to be done. Consider with me, first of all, that we show forth his salvation, verse 1, by singing a new song. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. We sing a song then, don't we, that should be different from the world's song. 
And I'll go another step here, which maybe will get me in trouble in the minds of some, but the style of that song should be different as well. should be new. One of the, um, I guess, uh, criticisms that I personally have had toward much of contemporary Christian music is an utter lack of originality. From a musical perspective, all they do is imitate the world and change the lyrics. Um, Can't we do any better than that? Some folks probably do, but others not so much. But anyway, here's where it starts. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. You can find some six instances in the Psalms when we're called upon to sing a new song to the Lord. And I've referenced these instances in the debates over exclusive psalmody. I believe in the light of such commands, as well as the New Testament instructions, to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we do have scriptural warrant for the use of new hymns of human composure. I recommend to you um, the commentary uh, on James by, oh, and now am I not going to remember his name? It was one of the Puritans and one of the authors of the Directory of Worship among the Westminster Divines. And he has a section in his commentary on James at the very end on that text that calls upon those that are merry to sing psalms. And this Puritan decides to utilize that text to give his view of singing psalms. And he makes an interesting concession at the beginning uh, of his comment by conceding, and he's conceding it in a fashion that would suggest that all the church knows this, that hymns of human composure that are not inspired by the Spirit of God are legitimate and are useful to the church as long as they're grave and pious and scriptural, saying goes. Now, exclusive psalm singers are not convinced by these arguments. They feel that the new songs referred to in the psalms are references to the new birth or new life or new salvation. We sang from Psalm 40, He put a new song in my mouth, our God to glorify Many shall see it and shall fear, and on the Lord rely. I think they're drawing a valid application from these commands, though I don't feel obligated to restrict my interpretation of these commands to that application. I believe the idea of a new song is an expression of praise to God in song for new spiritual experiences in Christ. And these new experiences are gained as our minds are constantly renewed, which is the process through which we are transformed into the image of Christ. New experiences give rise to new songs. And if you do any reading of the Great Awakening in the time of Jonathan Edwards, among the things that Edwards was criticized for, and he answers this criticism, was that those that were the objects of revival were singing new hymns. And uh, they were criticized, like I say, by those who 
thought their singing should be restricted to the Psalms. And in his um, uh, work where he gives an account of that revival, he also gives a defense of the use of new songs. The point I'm making now in bringing up this illustration of Edwards is just to show, to demonstrate historically by way of illustration that when the Lord moves in hearts, in grace, and in power, and in revival blessing, well, new songs follow. And in this way, God's salvation can be shown forth as the people of God live out the renewed experiences that they have of their blessed Redeemer. Whether they're expressed in song or not, they should be expressed by our lives. Our lives should show forth God's salvation by our countenances, by our attitudes, by our peace and our joy that we find continually renewed day by day as we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. I wonder this afternoon, can people tell that you're a Christian? Even if you don't tell them verbally, are they able to discern it in you? by the peace that you demonstrate, by the joy that fills your heart, by the way you hopefully don't get pulled into all the gloom and doom and corruption uh, and politics of this present evil world, but may they see in you someone who is able to rise above all of that in your faith in Christ. There's no better demonstration before the world of the Lord's so great salvation, but to see the effects of that salvation in the lives of those that have gained an interest in it. And that means then we must keep close to our God. We must seek him. We must spend time in his presence. We must pray. For it is oftentimes in the place of prayer that the Lord will give us new experiences of his love and his grace and his mercy. These are, in a sense, the new songs. And these renewed experiences are the things that we then share among the Lord's people, as well as with the lost. This is what makes Christianity something that is living, something that is vital, something that is demonstrated. A new song. So we show forth God's salvation through new songs. Consider that we also show forth his salvation through our declarations. Look with me, if you would, at verse 3. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. Really, you might look at that verse and say, there's a verse on evangelism. Because it's to take place among the heathen. Declare his glory among the heathen. His wonders among all people. That is something, you know, that you need to train yourself to do. And it really isn't terribly difficult if you have the spiritual perception to see the glory of God in all that he has created, and you're not ashamed to acknowledge him as being the creator. And then down in verse 10, Say among the heathen. Okay, here's another text then that can apply to evangelism. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. The Lord reigneth. 
And if you know that, and if you believe that, then you will not be pulled down into the doom and gloom and corruption of this world because you understand fully, you can see it in providence, and you see it certainly in God's word that it is the Lord who reigns. He sets up one, he brings down another, and he does this all to his glory to extend his kingdom. So these are our declarations. And do you see how in these verses, emphasis is placed on what we say to the heathen? We're not only demonstrating salvation by our attitudes and demeanors, but we're declaring it by the very words that we speak. And what I want you to see now is that the subject of our declaration is God himself. Declare his glory among the heathen. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. Basically, we are called upon to talk about God. Are you able to do that? Can you talk about God? Can you talk about Christ? The Barna study I cited a moment ago, which called for spiritual leaders to reconsider how they're presenting the gospel. Well, here's an alternative that isn't practiced, I'm afraid, in many circles. Let's tell people about God. Instead of focusing on a better plan for their lives, why don't we focus on the glory of our Redeemer. This is how the psalmist declares him. Honor and majesty are before him, verse 6. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The Lord reigneth, verse 10. He's the judge and he's coming and he will establish the world in a way that it will be righteous and it will reflect his glory. You know, there's more theology in these concise statements than what you might find in combined sermons from any number of pulpits in this city on any given Lord's Day. I'm afraid that it's come to pass that we are entirely too man-centered in our Christianity. Everything is geared to help and improve man. We want to boost his self-esteem. We want to give him a tip that will help him endure another miserable week. And churches are regarded, uh, in many, many circles, they are regarded as spiritual hospitals, so to speak. I come here to be healed. I come here to have my needs met. Everything is about me. Everything must focus on me. If it doesn't, this church is not very effective. I better go find another one. And you know where that mindset uh, exists? Uh, people will leave and they'll go to another church and uh, sometimes uh, new, a new atmosphere and new faces and new programs uh, may provide a temporary healing bomb, so to speak. But eventually, that church too will fail in functioning as a spiritual hospital. Now, I'm not about to, to admit that needs aren't addressed and that needs aren't met in church. Uh, not at all. I hope that would not be the case. But what I am trying to emphasize just now is that where that becomes the main focus of the church, that church will at some point become very ineffective toward those who 
view it primarily as a hospital. On the other hand, okay, what function then is the church supposed to do primarily? It's to be a house of worship. It's to be a place where God is confessed and worshipped and praised. And you know, an unusual thing can happen to people that approach church with that kind of perspective. You may find that when the focus isn't on your needs, first and foremost, you may find your needs actually being met by a simple adjustment of priorities of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things being added to you. So your needs are met as the right perspective is kept in place. But in these verses that I've cited, an emphasis on theology. Theology? What's the benefit of theology? What's the practical value in teaching about God? Doesn't that just lead to speculative theories and controversies and things that are of no real practical benefit? Doesn't theology leave a man cold and dead? Well, I think we've got it all backwards when we think that way. It's all this man-centered psychology and self-help that proves to be so ineffective. And it's ineffective because it leaves God out of the picture. We certainly find in the experience of the psalmist that as he focuses on God and as he endeavors to declare uh, the glory and majesty and beauty of God, then everything seems to come alive to him. And in that spirit of being filled with the knowledge of his Redeemer, look at how the psalmist is affected. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. It's as if all nature comes alive with a vitality to the person who uh, attributes first to God his glory and his majesty. I can remember times when I had to get up early in the morning. Uh, nowadays, I don't even know what that means. But when I worked in printing, I knew. And I would come out of the house. The sun would just be rising. Uh, the breeze would be gentle. The temperature is mild. The sky is clear blue. And uh, perhaps a gentle breeze blowing. And my, it would just feel as if an angel had wiped my brow and everything just took on a vitality to it. And I could go forward into that day thinking to myself, this is a glorious day. This is a wonderful day that God has given me. Because the perception of his glory is kept in place. And that's the perception of the psalmist in these verses. When he says, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar, let the field be joyful. Let everything come alive and give praise to God because I sense that He is the true and living God and that nothing can separate me from His love. Because the psalmist is taken up with the glory of his Redeemer, he feels that everything around him must and should break forth into joyful praise. And when your heart is filled with Christ, then everything does seem to come alive. There becomes no such thing as routine or mundane. 
And so we must declare before the heathen that our God is real, that other gods are false, that our God's made the heavens, our God is worthy of praise and glory and honor, our God rules and reigns, our God possesses strength and beauty. We need to make others know that this God is our God and we are the sheep of his pasture, redeemed by the blood of his Son. So we show forth his salvation by singing a new song. We show forth his salvation through our declaration of his glory. These two elements, you could say, come together in our final consideration. We show forth his salvation through our worship. Verse 9, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, fear before him all the earth. Our worship is the place where we sing our songs of praise to our Redeemer, and we declare the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. And so our worship truly becomes a place where we show forth his salvation It's good if we come to the house of God with our focus set right in that respect. We come to this house for the primary purpose of worshiping our God and King. And we come to this house to offer ourselves to our Savior. And this idea of offering is emphasized in verses 7 and 8. Look at those verses. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. You see the emphasis on giving in those verses. I think it's appropriate to note also how the psalm teaches us the manner of our worship. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness Fear before him all the earth. When the beauty of holiness and godly reverence are the factors that govern our worship, then I dare say that worship won't be treated as something that's casual. It'll be treated as something that's spiritual. Being casual is the mindset of America today. Fridays, Is this still true? Maybe someone can tell me. Uh, Do we still recognize Fridays as casual Fridays? Yeah, we still do that. Yeah. We haven't added any more days to that. Well, uh, it's coming. (laughs) Okay. Casual Fridays. I remember when I worked in printing, uh, the owner of our shop was once dealt with because he failed to show respect for Casual Friday. When he went to a meeting of business executives, he wore a coat and a tie, and they insisted that at the very least, he remove his tie for the sake of Casual Friday. Um, Very prevalent. May God keep us from regarding his day as Casual Sunday. I'm aware that we have to carefully guard ourselves against a pharisaic tendency to become legalistic about the way people dress. Okay, I know that, I get that. But on the other hand, when God himself designed the clothing for the Levitical priests, and especially for the high priest, it was anything but casual. I think the key needs to be 
God consciousness rather than culture consciousness. We're making a statement about our God and our worship of him. And the phrase in our text, the beauty of holiness, I think suggests the recognition of God's beauty and majesty, as well as the idea of something that is set apart from the usual. If our worship is to declare his salvation, then the appearance of our worship must speak as well. Or at the very least, we would hope that it wouldn't distract from his glory. Let's aim in our worship then and in our lives to show forth his salvation from day to day. And let's pray that God will make his salvation effectual in us and through us as we express our praise to him and declare his glory and worship him in the beauty of holiness. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we do pray that thou wilt grant us a fuller measure of God consciousness. We cannot deny, O Lord, that we see through a glass darkly. O Lord, may it please thee to pull back the veil and enable us to see with a little greater clarity and fullness thy beauty and thy majesty, thy majestic splendor and thy holiness. And may we act accordingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.